0: Welcome to the Enneagram with Chelsea and Mikael. This is a positively deviant culture podcast anchored in the Enneagram. Today, we're talking about the idea of boundaries and how boundaries show up in our personal lives and in business and thinking about how boundaries play a role in either helping or
1: holding us back from achieving what we're really after. What's interesting to note is how humans try to protect ourselves, right? And and what that looks like in context of a business and how a business is trying to protect itself. <laughs> you know, keeping the employees productive and hitting goals and doing all the things that businesses need to get done in order to succeed. And then how individuals put in that kind of system and structure, how they can flourish or um, be harmed. And so we have the the structures that humans are engaging with, and then we have the individuals <laughs> who are experiencing it directly. And this is the conversation. How do companies operate, and particularly in terms of policies, rules, and then how do individuals manage those policies, rules, expectations of their job, and how boundaries play in on that. And I think overall, the conversation around boundaries is really around self-protection. There's a lot of conversation around boundaries. And I think that boundaries are really about what we place around ourselves. And then rules and policies are that which is placed on us. When we first
0: had this conversation and you kind of brought this idea to the surface, I've been thinking about it since and thinking about the moments where I have culturally been encouraged to set boundaries and actually done work around, okay, where are the pains in my life, boundaries keep good things in and bad things out. This is kind of like air quotes, right? Of like a, a norm that we've accepted in our culture. And it really helped me to think differently around engaging the other and how single-sided it is to just kind of decide on a boundary and put it out there in the world and i was able to reflect and think about what opportunities are missed to engage and actually build you know relationship and partnership when it is a one-sided force
1: Yeah. I mean, one thing that I typically say, and I'll say it again here and preface with, yes, it's provocative, intentionally provocative in effort to get some deeper consideration about context and nuance, which is the people group (laughs) that need the most boundaries are children. And it's because children do not have the ability or the, the development in their brain socially or internally or self-awareness and all things, they don't have the skills in order to know how to navigate and protect themselves or to know the places <laughs> which are more dangerous or whatever, right? So in my experience and yes, this comes from my bias as an eight. <laughs> so I'll just admit that. I mean clearly there are a place for boundaries and this conversation is not about in the context of danger or abuse. so just to make sure that's clear. But for me, I'm interested in partnership and boundaries in the way that we use them in our culture, there's something that as you said, because this is how I present it, is that they're singular. There's something that I am or the individual puts on themselves and around themselves and the other isn't involved in that. And that's really important in certain uh, situations and in certain contexts. But if we're interested in partnership and we're interested in growth and developing our skills and becoming more expansive in our communities... We need to partner with other, and so for me, that's where I talk about agreements because then it's two people deciding um, what is in the best interest of the relationship, and you're considering more than just yourself. And it requires a different skill set, which I think is is important. That we as humans are moving to more expansive ways of of being, ways of navigating. And so for me, this is kind of the beginning of the conversation: is what are we interested in here, and are we you know, one, are we forcing others to protect themselves because our behavior is so bad? You know, so that's one question, whether it's a corporation or an individual, like that's just one thing to note. Right. And then also, if not, then is there opportunities to actually partner with someone else? another person or the people in a community to come up with very specific agreements based on the individuals involved rather than everyone where it may not apply. So, and this is how we're kind of bridging now into the corporate world. When I was first thinking about it, absolutely. It was a A self-protection
0: strategy, that boundary that I had, and this was personal life, but we also see them in our workplace. I think the two areas I would surface as takeaways as I've been thinking through this are the context, which we're huge on is it's not a one size fits all and different contexts will require different types of engagement and agreements and when you think about the example of kids or children needing boundaries they don't have the skill set to necessarily take into account the different contexts or the maturity to do that and then the other main thing that i think is a caveat important to put out there before we get too deep into this conversation is that we're not saying no boundaries ever we're saying, call it what it is, and that there's a skill set required to partner with someone and create an agreement. If you don't have the ability or the skill set to partner with someone and make an agreement with them, kind of work through the circumstances, then you might end up with a boundary, but call it what it is. Like, don't, don't go into these situations thinking boundaries are the gold standard and that's what we need because that's, again, coming from the self-protection perspective. Instead. Reach for more, I guess, is, is really what we're getting
1: to here. Yeah, and that's been our previous conversations and what I kind of invite everyone to do in their rethinking around boundaries is that, that we, I think we go to them too quickly because they're easier. And humans tend to like things that are immediate and um, require less effort and energy and context and, you know, evaluation and analysis, right? So, you know, it's a lot lot to do in the world and navigate the world. And we have all these other things going on in all these other individuals and all these other pain points, right? So we just do what works the most immediately. But I am here inviting people and, you know, to actually expand their skills and then at minimum be honest about where they're at. So it's like I often push against, you know, boundaries in general. And for me, I think it would be a lot better if we could at least admit like, hey, I don't have the time and energy right now or the interest or the ability necessarily to invest in partnership in this moment. So I'm creating a boundary, but I'm admitting that. And I'm admitting that this is, you know, less skillful thing to do. That's more immediate thing to do. And definitely isn't about really investing in this relationship. (laughs) <laughs> and there's something that's, you know, a little bit more clean about that rather than usually what humans do is they make a boundary and then villainize the other person for it, that there's something wrong. When really, I think a lot of the times it's just about only sometimes about the individual making the boundary where they will decide and justify for their own self why they need that boundary. When really with a little deeper investigation, they might realize that, that they're um, self-protecting in ways that doesn't serve them. And again, this is very contextual, and I am being general. But I think that that happens a lot of the times when we have insecurities, when we're triggered by um, what we don't like. And so we naturally create these justifications uh, and um, around our self-protection decisions and the boundaries they recreate. But we, when we look a little bit deeper, we usually find that they're not really that great, and they're not super um, even healthy, I would argue. Yeah,
0: what you've shared about in a moment saying hey, we realize we don't have the energy or the ability to engage in what's really needed in this moment. We're going to create a boundary, create a rule or a policy, roll it out and keep moving. I also hope that that's an invitation to revisit, right? So something in the moment where you don't have the ability to go deep and really solve the root, prefacing it that way might allow you to come back and say, hey, we realize the boundary is not the ultimate solution, So we're going to come back to this. Uh, Another thing that's important for us to have a quick convo on is around the difference between a boundary and maybe like a rule or regulation or a policy. And so we've talked a little bit about this and you've already mentioned some of the distinction. I think it also has to do with the audience involved. And so I think about a rule, a regulation or a policy as a group that could be a company uh, to another group of individuals. And I think about a boundary as the opposite. A boundary is very personal, and it can be put on another individual or pressed back against a larger group.
1: Yeah, I like that. I like that you added to that. I agree with that. What's interesting is that in any case, they can be a weaponization against ourselves and our relationships or the other, right? A policy and a rule or a boundary, all these things misused can actually be a pretty powerful weapon. And for example, I, I find that a lot of people use boundaries to bully others, you know, and this is, kind of goes back to what I was saying about justifying their behavior, making the other person wrong. And then as, a, and then using a boundary as a source of punishment or a source of control. And these are examples that I think that, you know, kind of go to the negative side. And again, you know, there are positive instances and good instances where boundaries are necessary. But I think in many times, we're not culturally or individually evaluating and taking the time to really um, investigate the health of the boundaries that we're creating, either for ourselves or others. And definitely, I don't think companies are. Companies create policies and rules in order essentially to control. (laughs) <laughs> right? And to, to mitigate risk, to control their people, to make sure that it, you know, weeds out the baseline of, of bad behavior. And I, I really want to push up against this in the sense of companies need to have more responsibility in terms of who they're hiring. And in, in this instance, it would be like, if you're hiring really excellent individuals, <laughs> they don't need to be controlled. They know exactly what they're doing. They're professionals. They they have a high level of competency. They're going to get the job done. And companies and, and managers don't need to really worry too much about how. And, and, and the more mature and excellent individual performers are, they'll ask for help and the resources that they need. They don't need to be micromanaged or to be controlled or policed or ruled out, right? Like in terms of many rules. And then, you know, conversely, if you're getting less mature people to contribute to a project or your, your team, Then you have to take responsibility for mentoring them and actually teaching them, which doesn't require rules, actually. (laughs) It requires personal investment and specific investment into these particular individuals to help grow them so they understand and are able to perform increasingly well, right? And either way, you know, companies need to decide and understand and own that investment and act appropriately. But instead, you know, because systems are designed by humans, (laughs) humans want broad sweeping rules and policies and systems so that they don't have to engage in individuals because that's much more difficult and more time consuming um, and uh, costs more energy. And 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 other costs, yet we know intellectually that the benefits are far greater and outstanding, but we just refuse to do it. I cannot tell
0: you how many times, and I'm sure listeners would, you know, go to their own bank of experiences and agree that you get feedback, right? Maybe in the, as part of a people team or an HR team or even an executive team. And the instinct in that moment is to create a rule that maybe impacts people who are doing just fine and engaging and contributing and performing. And somehow that boundary ends up holding them back. I'm trying to think of an example of like the feedback, like this one person did this one thing, or maybe there's four or five instances, whether it's someone coming in late or taking advantage of working from home. I mean, this is like a whole huge topic we could go into and we will another time. All of these employee behaviors and what I see in almost all instances is just slap a rule or a policy on it and move on to the next thing. And it's such a missed opportunity. First of all, it doesn't actually work to change the behavior of those who are, you could say, taking advantage or are out of line with the behaviors that you want. We know that it doesn't work because those are the first team members who are going to avoid the rule and not listen to it and not follow it. Right. It's not a it's not a motivational or an invitational thing to really reflect on behavior and understand the why and maybe adjust from there. And then I think it really negatively impacts all those people who were doing just fine without the rule. And so it's this constant cycle of just it's short sightedness and it's fair that we all like a quick fix. And I think from the people who are creating the roles, it feels like, okay, there's some level of security. We talk about self-protection in a business context, it's risk mitigation. It's like, okay, well, we wrote that down. We put it in the handbook. We sent that email. So now they're notified. It puts the problem on the people instead of keeping the area of opportunity with the leaders to engage and solve for it. And by the way, create a two-way dialogue (laughs) to not just be so authoritarian, but to listen
1: and understand
0: and adjust.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Chelsea. I mean, this and it's also employees aren't stupid, right? So it's also to set up litigation procedures, right? So so it's protecting the company from whatever employee bad behavior might. So it's all of the things you said, plus additionally, it's a part of the litigation sequencing, right? So that they can either fire you or enforce certain things legally or whatever, right? So we have all these processes that are protecting the company and they are, well, I should say they are mostly one-sided. And because the power, you know, belongs with the company. And so they're the ones that are instituting all of these things. And there isn't a two-way dialogue. And what we're suggesting is, is that if companies were to get smarter, (laughs) really, and start investing individually in their people, which is the whole human capital, you know, strategy conversation, that all of these risks would naturally organically be mitigated. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't exist, but it means that you would have a greater visibility into the problems And you'd have more tools and opportunity to solve them before it even got to this place, right? But humans are humans and we can't see the invisible benefits. And so we just end up doing what's immediate and necessary according to the other structures' demands, right? So in terms of the financial you know, structures, in terms of the legal structures, in terms of all these other structures have their own demands and requirements. And so it, those end up falling onto the human systems. This is a huge gap. There's not enough bridges and there's not enough integration into really understanding how humans work and the, and the systems that are designed, how it actually works against human systems, and and that will is always going to fail at some point. So it's it's odd that it goes against the very things that these systems and structures are trying to create. It's essentially a, a one, becomes one big self-sabotaging machine <laughs> because humans, we don't operate that way, at least not at our best. Another dynamic of the
0: self-protection strategy of creating a boundary or a policy or rule in the business context, I think is it's a very reactive thing. And what you're proposing is to be a lot more proactive and engaging and partnering to not even get to the point where, oh my gosh, it's such a mess. We're in trouble. There's liability or revenue law, whatever it is, culture on the line, we have to respond to this. Right now, in this moment, in a really reactive way, because we haven't been setting ourselves up to engage and get ahead of it, really. And I want to unpack the cycle of how this kind of policy might come to live within an organization. And I think we can
1: extrapolate that for our own personal lives, too yeah, I think the cycle is important because we can see the sequencing of how things happen and then and then strategically enter each part of the cycle, you know with greater intelligence, that's how we solve the problem. So yeah, let's let's dig into the cycle. So the company needs something needs something to happen. Employees,
0: or maybe I would even add, in many cases, a small subset of the po- employee base aren't compliant. And so they create a policy. The policy doesn't factor in any of the individual or human needs. There's no kind of engagement or listening. And in many cases, it takes advantage of certain aspects of the employee, right? So that's where things really start to go awry. And so what happens as a response to that is then employees create a boundary to respond back to this rule or policy that's been set with them. And just at a high level,
1: what would you add to that? I don't think I would add anything to that. I think there's a need, there's a business need that pops up or there's a consistent identified problem in the production cycle that's been identified by the company so there's some production gap that the company's identifying and they trace it back to particular people and then they want to correct for that and then they make a policy rather than what you know the alternative is well there's several alternatives but one is actually to go to individuals and investigate rather than immediately seeing that individuals are the problem. Usually individuals are, especially if there's a collection of them that seems to be repeated behavior among several individuals, there's usually a reason why. So why is that? And this is part of the work we do. We actually enter into companies and ask those questions from a pretty unbiased, you know, objective position. Like, hey, what, what is the reason why you're doing this? What is it that you need that you're not getting? Is that is somebody feeling overworked? Is there some problem in terms of some efficiency that actually has nothing to do with them, A, a bottleneck, you know, or a dependency that also has nothing to do with them, that they're just naturally trying to solve for and maybe less intelligently solve for, but still nonetheless solving for that. And so to investigate what is the reason why this individual or group of people are doing this? Is it that all of these people are lazy? Is it all of, you know, are all of the people, you know, less competent? You know, what are these things? And and generally, you know, unless you're hiring a bunch of incompetent people, which again, that is the onus on the company for doing bad hires, you know, and especially at that degree. It's usually not that. It's usually you have people who are doing fairly well at their job and are coming up against obstacles and they don't have the resources, tools, or support to uh, get around that obstacle. And so they're either burnt out or they don't feel like they have any agency or power. And so what you just said, Chelsea, is then there's the whole response to being pushed in a direction that they don't feel is working. And so, ne- so then what happens next is is frustration L- a lack of engagement, you know, being super negative and looking to their peers for some emotional or physical support and trying whipping other people up, right? And, and, and HR knows these things happen and that's what they're trying to stop. They're trying to stop the cycle of humans whipping up negativity and creating worse problems, which is also what humans do, but generally in a response to something that's not working, that they don't feel that they can control or solve by themselves. And this is what I think a lot of companies and managers are not recognizing and they're not actually doing the diligence. And in order to investigate what is really going on here. Is it an individual? Is it a group? Is it a manager? Is it a system, operational system, organizational system, team system, product system, reporting system, like all of these systems that could have all kinds of problems that are negatively affecting humans? And then how can we make changes within the system that actually are more in alignment with what the humans need to do their job the best way they can?
0: Getting back to the root issue versus trying to put all these band-aids of rules and policies to kind of solve for the symptoms of what's really wrong systemically. I think that we aren't tapping into the intelligence that already exists and the knowledge that exists for what's really wrong and why there's this response. I think we could do more of that as well as meanwhile, equipping managers to ask kind of like the questions that you were just suggesting of like, what's really happening? What are the bottlenecks? Why is this the problem? And servicing more of that versus asking managers and putting managers in a position where it's all about upholding rules and regulations. And it really puts the employee in that position where they have to self-protect.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, just to back up on that a bit, like I think that managers often don't know and they are out of touch it 's like humans, depending on their areas of strength um, they're going to be very tapped in you know to the things that they have better skills or or, or greater ability to recognize or notice right but there 's always gaps so there 's that where there are every manager, every individual has a different skill set and a different capacities and abilities right based on them individually so that's that 's one thing I think that what 's perhaps more primary is the relational skills that require trust and objectivity. So what really I think that I found in all of my years is a fundamental problem (laughs) that really is a root cause and all of the other things become symptoms because of this is the lack of trust in the people that they work for and particularly the people who are in power do not have the trust of the people underneath them. And that's because, you know, this is a relational skill. How do you build trust in in relationship when there's expectations and you're not the only person involved, meaning a manager isn't the only person involved in dictating the requirements and expectations to the people that, that work under them? So it becomes a complicated thing, right? And then also there's bias and agenda. Even managers aren't really being measured against the quality of the relationships that they have with their team. There are other outcomes that they are, I think, often loosely connected to quality of relationship, but there are particular outcomes like, you know, how successful a team is based on numbers or how successful they are based on speed or all of these kind of external measurements that then people assume add up to, oh, this is a really great team, high functioning team. But when you investigate a little deeper, it's like, yeah, their their external performance is high functioning, but there's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of all these other things that are not visible that are happening, which actually are increasing the risk for future problems. And that's often being missed. So that's one thing. And another thing is inherent agendas. When everybody's agenda is different meaning that what everyone is individually being measured against isn't aligned we have a lot of problems and i'm not just talking about in terms of kpis and you know these kind of things where you know obviously the team is pretty aligned on those things but i'm talking about political social and professional goals Right. Where everyone's in a different place. They all have different needs, different desires, different expectations in terms of career development or growth, um, happiness factors, who they're working with, all these things. So, you know, what is important and what are individual's priorities are not aligned, then everyone, it's pretty much every human for themselves. And the system rewards that in certain ways, right? And so how does this go wrong? That's part of the investigation as well. As one is the skills, just the human skills. (laughs) And then two is the absolute lack of alignment of agendas. And we spoke about this in another, like a perfect instance is you have managers who need certain things for their team to succeed. And so they're less willing to let people from their team move to a different team. Like that's a really easy example, right? Even though it's absolutely in the best interest of the individual to move teams. It's not in the best interest of the manager. And and then there's a certain argument that could be made that it's not in the best interest of the business, at least short term. So you have all these conflicting interests and these conflicting agendas. How do you actually resolve that without unbiased, objective, uh, outside help, you know, like us, Or people who are trained to have some of these skills and also even more than that, the systems and structures have to reward this kind of behavior, which is currently not happening. You are speaking so much about my experience in all kinds
0: of different organizations and watching the under measurement of really, really strong human skills in some pockets that are totally getting dissed. Like I think about when we were thinking about this cycle I think that the cycle kind of spits out people who could actually be really, really productive and engaged and amazing team members because they're unwilling to go along with the short-sightedness Rules And they realize they have a lot to contribute or want to do it in a way that doesn't necessarily meet the short-sighted measurements of our societal and cultural norms when we think about success and achievement and KPIs that are on a spreadsheet, so to speak. And I think these are some of the most powerful areas that a company can leverage if they do have a more expansive view of what does success look like and where are our most successful team members.
1: Yeah. And that kind of returns to the idea that it's about trust, right? Because whatever action that leaders have, if it's inconsistent and also if there's other ulterior motives, so in other words, it's not pure, that isn't going to be trustworthy. And I think that that leaders and in, in companies consistently underestimate the intelligence of their people. Really people get what's going on. They get who's not trustworthy, which is rarely anyone. I don't know what the percentages are, but I think that most um, employees actually don't have a high trust and great relationship with their managers, and certainly not with the current systems that are trying to oversee these relationships like HR. This is a huge, huge problem that everybody knows, and and it seems like nobody really wants to talk about. And, and, And what's odd is the very system that is the least trustworthy is where the people in power throw the responsibility to solve. And this just is so bizarre to me. It's like, we already know that this system is broken. Why would you continue to lean on a broken system to solve the very thing that they're creating? You know, HR, in my opinion, is a huge part of the problem. And it's not because of the individuals who work there. It's because of the system itself is designed poorly. And um, and it absolutely does not work. For
0: today, we're going to bench you and I blowing up HR systems and <laughs> reinventing the whole wheel. And of course, there's the intermediate solution. I think having a third party that's not attached does definitely open up that ability for trust, which is something yeah. that we, are, we offer. But beyond that, I think there's an invitation for folks who are already in this space to realize that what's happening isn't working. Like people can find ways around the rules very easily. I mean, examples of this are, I was recently talking to someone who works at a global organization and they've gone to, um, you can't hire remote anymore. And so this person who works at this company's advice is just, oh yeah, just get hired like you'll be in the office and then get an accommodation. Like there are such easy loopholes for people who have the desire to engage And have the energy to overcome the short-sighted rules that don't actually add value to the organization.
1: Oh, this is one of my favorite places to to talk about what I have done in the past and what I've encouraged others to do is I actually look for the people who have the intelligence to work around rules and policy. That's what I value. For me, that is a whole different intelligence. And this is provocative and intentionally so. If you are able to do your work in a different way, in a different construct, and different timing, and none of the quality is compromised, you are the kind of person that I want to work with. You are the person that I want to hire. And the ability to, to work around the rules, to me, is a kind of intelligence. I don't want to put anyone of my people in a position where they need to work around the rules. That number one is just bad business. But when I am looking at other companies and in terms of like sourcing some of the best talent, usually the MVPs know how to do this very well. And um, it ends up being just, they get, they get good at gaming the system. Why? Because they feel that their employers are gaming them. There's a desire to have reciprocation. There's a desire to have a balance. And this is kind of goes back to boundaries in a way is that in this instance, and I have done this, I mean, I, I've definitely a person who works around the rules and, and really it's to prove a point that my workarounds end up being more efficient and, uh, and a higher level of, uh, competency and more valuable solutions than the ones that are being imposed on me. It's a game. And I find that high value assets, as I call them, HVAs, end up having the same capacity. And those are the most valuable humans that can figure something out in a better way and are not going to be stopped by not very well thought out restrictions. That are making their job more difficult. And this is something that I think even many people who are not necessarily MVPs still do. Like we understand how to manipulate the system back, which is again, why these don't work, which is the overall point.
0: Yeah. And there's such a tolerance for high performers, again, air quotes, who are working around the rules, but they're adding so much value. They're doing their job really, really well. They're leaders in the organization oftentimes, not by position, but by the way that they approach their work. And so there's so much tolerance for this allowance of people to break the rules when they're adding value. So the rule initially is created to have fairness, right? And equity across the company. But then you allow the people who are getting the work done anyway, by finding creative ways to get around the rules to flourish and to oftentimes even be in the limelight because they're doing such a great job. And that's what really causes the distrust across the employees because they can see that these people are breaking the rules, but yeah. HR isn't holding them accountable because and this is where you have the dissension between maybe other members of an executive team or leaders like expecting HR to hold them accountable because their team members are upset that this person is breaking the rules and they're still being you know applauded for their work.
1: It's leaders job to investigate what is working and what is not working, not just for the overall company, not just for their organization, not just for their team, but for each individual. And that's what's missing in this equation, right? Is that if we were more committed to investigating and, and, and actually helping others figure out what they need, because some, some people, and this is what we come up against a lot, is that some people don't know and they need help figuring out like what they need. And what kind of what specific kind of support they need, Um, and and they need to learn how to to be more self solving individuals. Which is you know my work is essentially that decision intelligence. It is about how can we learn how to solve our own problems even without help and support, at least in obvious ways. Right? Why is this being missed though? And I think that a lot of um, managers are being charged to check in with their people, to make sure that their needs are being met. But it's all within the current constructs, right? They're not a lot of creative uh, problem solving. There's not a lot of creative um, relational trust building where there's not an ability or an avenue to actually get to some more accurate intelligence or accurate sharing of information because the relationship isn't there. And I think that's something that we need to look at is that relationships have to be there. In order to get to some of this higher quality um, and higher accuracy of information, we think about engaging on the individual
0: level, and that feels and that can feel like a very monumental task, especially thinking about the size of some organizations and the energy that it requires to think that way. And we do it in one place that you called out in a previous conversation, and this is around compensation where we treat an individual as a single person, we take their experience and their maturity and whatever they're bringing, and we give them a unique salary based on that. And it seems to me that everywhere else out of their entire employment, that is the only place where they're being engaged on that kind of individual level. We know that it's possible. We know that we can set ourselves up in a way to engage with individuals
1: on a one-to-one level. Yeah, that's the example I give frequently for that reason is it's like, look, when we're courting someone to hire them, we're giving them all kinds of individual attention. And if recruiting systems are done well, then it's absolutely about being reciprocal, meaning, you know, you're equally trying to make the company feel worthy of this individual's, you know, employment, as much as you are trying to really understand the the potential employee's value and position and contribution capacities, right? So if this is being done well, it's very mutual. And it stops there, though. <laughs> you know, and I mean, and not in all cases, like, I don't want to be so extreme. I mean, clearly, there's better managers than others. And there's better, you know, leaders than others. And there's better systems in certain companies than others. But it tends to decrease and certainly decrease in priority because they're already in. Now it's kind of just thrown to you know a manager or thrown to the individual to be entirely responsible for their own everything. And by the way, I'm a huge proponent of being responsible and having enormous amount of agency, you know, as the individual employee to take control and charge over your happiness in any situation. But it's much more difficult to do that when you don't have the people and the systems around you supporting that process. And oftentimes what we come up against, meaning you and me, Chelsea, in in companies, that companies are actively going against individuals happiness, going against their needs, going against their career goals and going against um, some of these communication and intelligence sharing strategies. It's like, oh my gosh, like this is a continual problem that I think everyone's aware of. Like, I don't think we're surfacing something new here that no one's heard before, but the the opportunities to solve are difficult and challenging. And that's what we're here for. I mean, that's why we're having the conversation. This is exactly what I see time and time again.
0: And it's, Okay. It's a house of cards that's just ready to to cave in. And it's frustrating because we can see a different path, even if it's geared towards the same outcome and the same results. Like, we understand companies need to perform. There needs to be profits to continue to grow and hire. But I believe it's more about the how you get there. And I think that's really what this conversation is about, is less of a one-size-fits-all and more of an individual conversation with trust present, a true listening, and then building a culture where you're responding to employees versus just spitting out uh, an email full of rules or policies that
1: people honestly don't take seriously. I think, yes, to everything you said. And I think that the point of this conversation is to go over again, exposing the layers of the problem. And I don't think that this is new to anyone. Like, I think everyone in leadership or anyone who's worked for a company is completely aware of everything we said. Like, I don't think that we've offered original thinking, uh, you know, in the the problem. But what I want to remind everyone is, is the expansiveness of this problem, like to all of the degrees in which it exists and the layers of, of which we find it you know, from top to bottom to right to left, right? In every organization and every team and in every relationship that, that an individual has with any other person in the company, but particularly managers and the people in power, like this is a complex problem. So, okay, we've made that point. What are the potential solutions? And I would argue that I don't think a solution exists yet, certainly not in HR. And I don't think that HR will have the credibility or the trust in order to solve this problem. So I am throwing it to leaders, which is why I am invested in leadership development and decision intelligence, right? This is the place where it needs to change As individual leaders and managers and individuals in general. How can we grow our skills and our um, awareness to be able to dig into this problem, which is more nuanced, it's, it's more relational and it's trying to notice the systemic problems in ways that we can create... Uh, I think a little bit more revolutionary solutions instead of, you know, massaging it here and there and doing this and that, that doesn't, it's not actually effective. It's certainly not enough. How can we take bigger risks? And that this is usually what it requires, right? Usually growth requires risk and bigger and bigger risks. And then half they have to be intelligent. So I think this is what we're offering, Chelsea, is, you know, is is a conversation for where are some more intelligent risks to take and and how would we organize those risks in terms of prioritization? How would we do multiple things at the same time, which I think is what is demanded of us. In order to solve certain problems, we can't just start with one thing. We have to start with a few things (laughs) at the same time. You know, I think people need help doing that. I hope that this conversation
0: just brings awareness to all of those people who are in companies, whether they're on the employee side or on the leader side and experience a lot of this, to put words to what that experience is and to offer an opportunity, whether it's an individual contributor reaching for those skills to engage and and work through these constructs differently, or it's leaders choosing to engage with their teams differently and invite more of this comprehensive thinking, take intelligent risks. Yeah. Meeting the moment, creating agreements and resisting the urge to create a policy to solve for a symptom. If you want to engage with us, ask questions, bring your ideas and your experiences to this conversation, we would love to hear from you. Find us on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening.